Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to admit or acknowledge any known sins in your life to God the Father and then to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus, concentrate, and study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have spoken, as Hebrews 1.1 tells us, that you have spoken in uh, various fragments in a variety of forms in times past to, by means of the prophets to the fathers, and that your word is absolute truth, and it is in your word that, in the light of your word that we see light, and as our Lord prayed, it is in the, your word that is absolute truth, that is a means of sanctification. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would use it to uh, sanctify us, to continue our spiritual growth, that we would be able to more uh, accurately understand the mechanics and means and purpose of your revelation, and that we would respond to it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we started in on Hebrews 1.1, and we started as part of our study of Hebrews 1.1, the doctrine of revelation. Now this is crucial to understand the importance and significance of how the Bible was revealed to man. That there is a unique, a unique methodology to the revelation of scripture to man. It is not like any other religion. Unfortunately, everybody coming from a human viewpoint or pagan perspective Wants to, has that as their frame of reference, and they want to ram, cram, and jam or reinterpret the Bible and the revelatory aspect of the Scripture into a pagan or human viewpoint framework. Consequently, you get all kinds of distortions and, and confusion over how revelation operates. So I want to take some time just to go back over the, where we went last week before we move forward. Hebrews 1.1, actually it should be translated after, it's a, a temporal participle, after God spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets at various form, fragments and various forms as we saw last time. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. I pointed out last time that the the, the Greek text actually begins with these two adverbs that indicate the manner of the revelation, that it was fragmentary and it was in various different forms. 
So that's why I want to translate this, not various times, but in a variety, in various fragments and a variety of forms. So the first word was polymeros, indicating something given in parts or in fragments. This indicates the fragmentary nature of Old Testament revelation. Even New Testament revelation was fragmentary. People don't understand that. Paul did not understand the entire scope of New Testament revelation. That's why God used the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. He used the other apostles to give revelation so that even in 1 Corinthians 13:8, we read that prophecy and knowledge, that's talking about those spiritual gifts and their operation, were partial. And that's what that means. Nobody, no one individual had all the revelation. So even in New Testament times, this same procedure is followed until all the pieces get there, and then you have a closed canon. The second adverb that begins the verse is polytropos, or tropos, that refers to uh, many ways or various manners, and as we'll see, this includes direct communication, dreams, visions, angels, uh, theophanies. God was not restricted to one form. There is no normative way that God revealed himself. And he did this by means of the prophets. I think we need to understand this as an instrumental dative. He reveals himself, and the prophets are simply the vehicle through which he operates. But it is God who's doing the revealing. And he did this in old times. So the first verse focuses on how he operates in the Old Testament. Second verse focuses on what happens when we have the incarnation with the Son. So the corrected translation of that first verse was, After God spoke long ago in various fragments and a variety of forms to the fathers by means of the prophets. So that gets us started. After God spoke long ago in various fragments and a variety of forms to the fathers by means of the prophets. We compare verse 1 and verse 2, you see the parallelism. Verse 1 says, After God spoke. Verse 2 he spoke now, that is, during the, for this dispensation. In verse 1, he spoke to the fathers, that is, the Old Testament uh, fathers, to the Jews. Verse 2, now he has spoken to us, that is, church-age believers. Verse 1, he spoke by means of the prophets. Verse 2, by means of his son. Now, a question should come to somebody out there who's thinking, well, what about the apostles? And we'll get to that, and that's one of the fascinating parts of the study, is that Jesus never wrote anything down. He never wrote an epistle. He never wrote down the Sermon on the Mount. But the apostles represent the foundation of the body of Christ, and they're the ones who give that revelation. But that's all part of understanding the whole dynamic of how New Testament revelation takes place. So that's just a foreshadowing of coming attractions. The main idea is in these two verses, which is the core of the first four verses, is that God spoke. Everything else in these first four verses relates somehow to this definitive act of God in revealing himself to us. And the verbiage here is so important. God spoke. No other religion has the kind of speaking that the Bible has, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the New Testament has. If you go to India, the Indian gods are all silent. They don't speak. They don't reveal themselves. 
So this radically distinguishes the method of operation that God has and what the Bible represents from everything else. I mean, you have the Bible on one side, you stick all other religions and uh, Christian heresies on the other side. Then we got into the doctrine of divine revelation. And I'm going to speed through the first five points just so we have context, but I don't want to cover everything. Revelation is basically derived from the Greek word apocalypsis. This is the first point. It means an unveiling or an unfolding. So revelation then means the unveiling or the unfolding of God. He reveals himself or discloses information to mankind. Revelation, though, has to be distinguished from other words that are important in the whole process. For example, inspiration is the process God uses to reveal himself and to oversee the recording of the revelation. The revelation is the content, what is disclosed. Inspiration is the process whereby God the Holy Spirit works in and through the writer of Scripture to guarantee the accurate recording of the revelation. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, 2 Peter 1:20 20 and 21 verses we'll look at in the process of going through this. Illumination. This is the process whereby the Holy Spirit enables us to understand what has been revealed in Scripture. Now, it's so important. You will hear people day in and day out say, well, I read my Bible this morning and God spoke to me. And they always say that in those hushed tones, you know. It's, it's just poor verbiage because people aren't taught. When you say God spoke to me, as we're going to a- analyze this evening, we go through the Old Testament and see how that's used, you are making a profound statement. And when that happened, when those circumstances occurred in the Old Testament, it isn't that they were reading the Bible and they got an insight into the meaning of the text or how it applied to their life. That is referred to by the theological term illumination and is the process whereby we come to understand what the text means and how it applies in our life. It's not God speaking. It's not revelation. It may be new to you all of a sudden, but it is not just now being revealed. It's been there in the Bible for thousands of years. And then we have the concept of the leading of the Spirit, whereby he uses the Scripture as well as uh, counsel, teaching of a pastor, various circumstances to direct our lives. These are different. Don't, make, don't confuse this term. Don't get into sloppy verbiage or we get into trouble. Then third point we saw was that there are two categories of divine revelation. Make sure you got all those. First point was... Uh, I say the first point was. First point, the definition of revelation is disclosure. Second point distinguishes it from inspiration, illumination, and leading. Third point, there are two categories of divine revelation. There's general revelation, which is nonverbal. This is the heavens declare the glory of God. We see the evidence, the results of his work, and this is, goes by the name. One, one aspect of this is what we see today in terms of what's called ID or intelligent, the intelligent design argument in creation. It doesn't get you, remember this, the ID argument doesn't get you to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give you something to chew on. Just because you have a what doesn't mean it's a that. You've got to know the that to make sure you've got the right what. I heard a philosophy, an apologetics professor said that. 
And that was one of his little favorite catchphrases, and I'd go home and twist my head over that and try to figure out, now, what's he mean by that? And the thing is, just because you have an intelligent designer doesn't tell you it's God, because you don't have essence or attributes attached to that. You just know there's an intelligent designer. But what is it? Only the Bible can come in and tell you that he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, righteous, just, love, and give you the attributes. So you can't say that the ID, the intelligent designer, equals the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because all you have is a that something is there, but you don't know what it is. Only the Bible gives you that information. Then we have special revelation. Special revelation is progressive in nature, and it is verbal. Special revelation is progressive in nature. That's point number uh, four. Special revelation is progressive in nature. It starts and it advances incrementally down through time. Fifth point, special revelation is verbal. It's not ideas or concepts. See, this is what you get in liberal churches or neo-Orthodox churches, that it's the ideas in Scripture that are inspired, not the words. But if you change from one synonym to another, you change the shape of the idea. Words are important, and the Scripture makes it very clear that, it, that inspiration extends down to the words. Exodus 19.6, God says, These are the words, in this last clause here, These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Other passages uh, we covered last time. Now, that brings us down to point six. Point six, and this is the crucial thing to understand, and that is that Revelation in the Bible that distinguishes biblical revelation from everything else is that it is verifiable, testable, and objective. It is verifiable, testable, and objective. That is so important because, see, what modern man wants to do, well, not just modern man, what men have wanted to do down through the ages is they have wanted to take the concept of, of inspiration in the Scripture as mystical, as subjective, the problem with, with a mystical, subjective revelation like you have in many different pagan religions is that there's no criteria to determine its veracity. There's no criteria to determine its veracity. Anybody's going to come along and say, God said. I mean, if you really want to authenticate your position, if you really want something to back yourself up, you just say, God told me to do it. Oh, well, great. Yeah, let's just all fall in line and follow you right down the road. Just because God told you to do it. But see, the Bible says that's not good enough. Not only that, if you come along, the Bible says, and you have miracles and you heal people and you even raise them from the dead, that ain't good enough. So these are the tests. The Bible, completely different from anything else, gives you tests and gave the Old Testament tests on how to evaluate Anyone who came along and said, God told me to do this. Deuteronomy 13, uh, 1 through 4. This is the first test. And the first test is that the content of their disclosure must be consistent with the rest of the Bible. It must meet the test of theological accuracy. It can't contradict something else that God said somewhere else. 
Deuteronomy 13.1, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder, notice the text assumes that there's, it doesn't say it's a false sign or wonder, it says it's a sign or a wonder. Who knows how it was accomplished in the power of Satan? Or, but the problem is, is not just because they healed somebody, just because dear old Aunt Mary went down to see Benny Hinn and he whopped her on the head and she got so-called, she allegedly got cured of cancer, doesn't mean that God's working through him. That's verse 2. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve him. See, this is the content of their revelation. They're saying, let's do something. Let's go after all these other gods, which is a direct violation of the first commandment, that you will have no other gods before me. Therefore, no matter what they do, no matter how many miracles they perform, no matter how many demons they cast out, no matter how many people they whop on the head and slay in the spirit, if what they say doesn't pass the doctrinal smell test, then what they're doing doesn't come from God, which elevates doctrine above everything else. Verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments, obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Uh, I skip verse 3. Somehow that got dropped out. Verse 3 reads, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. In other words, the point is, is the Word of God going to be more real to you than your feelings, your emotions, your experiences? Is the Word of God going to be more real to you than the fact that you suddenly got healed of something when so-and-so passed their prayer cloth over you? Are you going to listen to the Word of God or are you going to let your experience control? And the bottom line is that the Word of God must evaluate and judge experience and emotion, not the other way around. You don't let your experience and your emotion judge or cause you to change your interpretation of Scripture. And this happens so frequently in a lot of different areas that people come along and all of a sudden, I know a professor at Dallas Seminary who went through some health crises. And when he was done, he started changing his views on healing in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the, the intensity of the emotions that he went through in that health crisis changed how he interpreted Scripture. He didn't, you read what he writes, and it wasn't because, oh, suddenly I, I have a better understanding of the grammar of the text. Suddenly I have a better understanding of the words in the text. I, I, I found, we found these other documents, or I've done this research and, and this. It's not based on that. It's, it's their experience that drives that. Back in the mid-'80s, there were three professors at Dallas Seminary who got sucked into what was known as the Vineyard Movement or the Signs and Wonders Movement. And I knew all three of them had been professors. I knew all three of them. They had been professors of mine. Two of them I knew fairly well. And in every case, it wasn't because they came to a better understanding of the Scripture through exegesis. It was because they had an experience. And this is so dangerous. I can't tell you how many people come along, they have some experience, 
And, oh, well, I must have misunderstood the Scripture. No, maybe you're misinterpreting the experience. It's a test from God to see whether you're going to stick with the Word or you're going to let experience rule in your life. Okay, Deuteronomy 18 gave us the second test. And the second test was that when a prophet makes a prophecy, the standard for God's prophets is 100% accuracy. Not 99%, not 90%, not 85%, but every single prophecy that they make is going to come true. Absolutely. And so the question then becomes, well, what happens if they make a prophecy about something that's going to happen 500 years or 1,000 years or or 2,000 years away? How would you know? God always gave a near-term prophecy that would be fulfilled in the immediate time frame to validate the long-term prophecy. God, and that's a principle. God never gives these guys long-range prophecies without giving them near-term prophecies to validate their claim to be a prophet. You know, God's remarkable. One of the corollaries to that that we're going to see this evening is that God never does something in private. If He does speak to people in private, He always confirms it in public. There's always that objective, verifiable, testable criterion to determine that God is the one who spoke, not that it's not your feelings, that you just didn't have some dream, that you just didn't have, you know, a triple jalapeno pizza last night before you went to bed and have some unusual dreams. It's, it's, uh, it's the objective Word of God. So Deuteronomy 18.21, And if you say in your heart... How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Notice that emphasis on word there. How will we know if the Lord hasn't spoken? Criterion verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And the result is, of course, the death penalty. For anyone who said, God spoke to me, and that wasn't true. So you see that phrase, God speaks to me, is a a powerful, powerful phrase. Now last time we went on into point seven to give an illustration of the test. And that illustration came from the situation with the young prophet from from Judah who came and confronted Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam was the first king in the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam the son of Nevat. And we went through that situation in First Kings 14. It's a bizarre situation. And in the first part of the chapter, you see the operation of the second test. That is, the prophecies fulfilled. He said, it gave a precise prophecy. He said, there's going to be a king that's going to come named Josiah. Very precise. And Josiah is going to come and he's going to sacrifice these false priests on this altar. That didn't happen for 290 years. But it happened precisely. We looked at the uh, biblical evidence of that last week. It happened precisely as the prophet said. But to make sure that Jeroboam understood that his authority came from God and that he was speaking the word, word of God, the prophet said 
that so that you know this, this altar is going to be split and the ashes that are on it are going to be poured out on the ground. Now, you have to understand, these altars were big. They were, they were maybe three or four feet tall and, and four or five feet square. So they're, they're enormous. And this altar is split down the middle and all the ashes from all the burnt offerings just, just fall out on the ground. Then Jeroboam decided he's going to kiss up to this prophet and make it look like they're on the same side, so he wants to invite him home for dinner. And he invites him home for dinner. If the prophet were to go with him, it would signify that he was buddying up to Jeroboam and that he was compromising with Jeroboam. And this was a problem in the northern kingdom, which you had various prophets who'd compromised with the ecumenical, this new ecumenical religion of, of Jeroboam in the north. And God specifically told him to avoid this and said, when you get done giving your message, you go straight home. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Don't eat fried chicken with anybody. You just go straight home. So he heads home. And on the way home, another prophet comes. Now, this is test number two. This is an old prophet who lives in Bethel, which is where this has happened. And he's heard about this from his son. And he goes looking for the young prophet. And when he... Uh, found the young prophet, he said, come on home with me, and we'll have, have uh, bread and wine, we'll have dinner. And the prophet once again said, no, God said to go straight home. And at this point, the old prophet lied. The old prophet lied, and this is the first test, the test of consistency. And that first prophet said, oh, no, no, no. The old prophet said, no, an angel appeared to me. And this angel appeared to me and said, it's okay, you can come home with me. No, well, see, the young prophet didn't apply the first test of Deuteronomy, 8, or Deuteronomy 13, and the new command violated the first command, and so he compromised. So he went home with the, with the old prophet, and while they're having dinner, God did actually speak through the old prophet. He was a prophet, and God had spoken through him in the past, but he wasn't now. But now he does, and through, the, through this old prophet, he, he, he tells the prophet that, that the young guy is not going to make it home. Now, we're going to come back and talk about this in a little bit, but I think that was a, as I read the text, I don't know that this was an audible uh, reference from God. It was, it, maybe he's just speaking in his mind. This is one of the difficult things to determine is how does God speak? I think in a lot of cases he's speaking externally and audibly. We'll see the evidence for that. But in this situation, I think that in some cases God is speaking and the, the prophet is hearing the words in his head. So it has a subjective aspect, but it's going to be validated because it's going to come true. And the pro- old prophet says, well, God just spoke to me, and he said, you're not going to make it home. So the young prophet got on his donkey, headed home, and a lion attacked and killed him. And then there's a miraculous scene there where this lion, and there were lions prevalent in, in Israel through much of the second millennium, uh, up even past the time of David. Remember, David killed lions and bears. And so this young, uh, this young prophet is killed, but the lion just sits there. Just sits there. He doesn't eat the donkey and he doesn't eat the man. This indicates something miraculous is going on. The old prophet comes down, picks him up, takes him home, buries him in his, in his grave. But the point is that God is demonstrating as an, uh, this, this young prophet as an object lesson to Jeroboam and to everyone else that when you compromise with the pure word of God, there's going to be divine discipline. You can't compromise the word of God. And so 
we see the importance in this whole episode of sticking to the tests that Scripture has for itself to validate its own consistency. So that was our illustration. And we just about wrapped up there, and then I wanted to deal a little bit with the whole concept of mysticism. The whole concept of mysticism, because this is where people get so confused today. And I want to go to our ch- the chart that is pretty familiar to most of you by now. We'll slip down here to... Here we go. The basis of knowledge. How do we know anything? We have two categories. We have the autonomous systems of perception. This means this is how man, apart from God, tries to figure out and explain reality. How do you know anything? And in in a strict breakdown, there's only three ways. Now, in reality, most people blend them. But we have to understand it systematically to begin with. And this is in contrast to divine viewpoints. So these top three are how human viewpoint always functions. Human viewpoint always puts ultimate truth in one of these categories. The first category is rationalism. And the starting point is innate ideas, that somehow man just knows something is true. And from that starting point, he uses logic to build out his whole understanding of reality. Plato did this in the ancient world. Descartes did this in the modern world. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And what he was saying was he, he was trying to figure out, well, maybe God's just this cosmic deceiver. And you don't exist. This church doesn't exist. This pulpit doesn't exist. All this is just a, an illusion in the mind of God. Maybe I don't exist. Maybe I'm just running around in the imagination of God and nothing exists. And, and then as he thought about that, he realized, but, but I'm thinking. Since I'm thinking, I must exist. That was his conclusion. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. So that's his starting point. I exist because I'm thinking. I don't know if you exist, but I know I exist. Well, let's see if I can use logic to get to the point where I can prove that you exist and the universe exists and God exists without relying upon sense data because maybe God's just deceiving me and, and you're just an illusion. That's rationalism. Uses logic and reason. Man thinking that by his own reason, he can solve his problems. Empiricism is the idea that we use sense perception, external experience, the scientific method, uh, what we feel, taste, touch, hear. All of this gives us data, and we can properly, and the assumption is, the method is that, that we can properly interpret that. That's faith in human ability, that that what I see is true and my ability to interpret that sense data is true. So that's faith in human ability to, to come to absolute truth based on sense perception. Again, it's built on the use of logic and reason. The third category is mysticism. Mysticism is the idea that we have this inner private experience of truth. It's known intuitively. We just, we just know it's true. And usually when you have an intuition, it's based on experience or reason at some level. But in mysticism, there's a rejection 
of logic and reason as the means to, to understand truth. You just know it. It's, it's just like an immediate flash of insight, and you just know it, and it's so real. The experience, the internal experience is so real. Your interpretation is so real that I'm not going to listen to logic. You know, we've all heard this statement, don't confuse me with facts, my mind's made up. Well, that's mysticism. And mysticism is really rationalism gone to seed, because in rationalism you start inside your head with an idea. But I'm going to get from my idea to absolute truth with logic. But if logic breaks down, but you still have to have meaning in life, but logic can't get you there, then you're just going to say, oh, I've got to have meaning in life, so I'm just going to believe there's meaning in life. And this is where existentialism came from. It's just this illogical, irrational leap of faith that I'm just going to believe there's a God. Uh, there's nothing in life makes sense. Everything's irrational, illogical, but I'm just going to believe there's God. That laid the foundation for postmodernism, which was where we are today. So we're living, we're embedded in a mystical culture. People, all, people are always asking, well, how do you feel about that? Well, I don't care how you feel about that. What do you think about it? See, we're not, it's not subjective. It's, it's objective. Now, what happens is that in terms of explaining revelation, and we'll get to this a little more next time, each of these systems has its own concept of trying to explain revelation. But notice, all of this operates apart from God. It's only in the divine viewpoint system that you have revelation. See, the, the giving of the information in the Bible wasn't mystical. It stands over against mysticism. It's revelatory. It is God speaking intrusively into creation. So the top categories completely reject the creator-creature distinction, and only the lower category upholds a creator-creature distinction. So you have an objective truth. You don't get to objective truth in the top three. That's what happens if you're a student of philosophy. That's what happened with uh, Immanuel Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason. He said we can't know it. All we can know is our perceptions. We can't know truth as it is. And after that, everything just went to hell in a handbasket intellectually. Ever since about 17, 1780s, I think, when that was, that was published. And everything, because it destroyed objectivity. You can't know truth in and of itself anymore. You can only know your perception. And we've been working out the consequences of his uh, screwed-up thinking ever since. And revelation doesn't reject, if you're operating on a revelatory understanding, you don't reject logic and reason, but you realize that God gave us logic and reason to use within the framework of what he's revealed. And this gives you a radically different sense of, of how God operates. Now, having gone through that, we have to understand mysticism. Mysticism just lurks around every, every single corner. And one of the reasons I've gone through this is because I got some questions a few weeks ago where uh, somebody was wondering, well, how do you explain this? I, I've always heard that the Bible is mystical. You talk about the mystical union of the believer with Christ. And there's always this element. And that's because... That's because what happens is that down through the ages, Christians have always compromised a pure revelatory position with either rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. And you, so you come out with some kind of hybrid. 
You know, people, people don't fit into nice little categories. They're not all rationalists or empiricists or mystics. There's, they combine all this stuff. And most Christians are products of a worldview that is either, you know, heavily rationalistic or mystical, one or the other. And then they come into the church and they bring that baggage with them and try to interpret the Bible in terms of their past framework. And so you, in the 20th, late 20th century, we have a society that's mostly mystical. So somebody gets saved out of a New Age background, and they read the Bible that God spoke to them. How are they going to interpret that? In terms of their screwed-up mystical frame of reference. So now all of a sudden, they're out there in the desert, or, or like in the ancient church, they had the early church fathers, the mystics, who went out, and they were called the pillar saints. And they would go out, and they would build these pillars, and they'd be six feet tall, and then eight feet tall, and then twelve feet tall. And Simon Stylides was one of the most famous. And they'd sit on top of these pillars for days, weeks, months. And everybody thought they were, ooh, so spiritual. And they would, they would uh, sit there, and before long, they'd have crowds. And they'd stand up there on their pillars, and they'd preach and talk about all these mystical visions they had. And this just, all this garbage entered into the history of Christianity. And then you have, you have different... Uh, mystical movements all the way down. You had the Quakers and the Shakers, and and see the Shakers didn't believe they they didn't believe in sex, so they were all celibates. That's why there aren't any Shakers left. You had had the uh, they had some nice uh, they had made, made some nice furniture. In fact, we went to a Shaker village up in New Hampshire one time when we were up in New England. But you, you, they, they they all died off. I remember about 20 years ago going to one. And there were three old Shaker ladies. And they were old. That was the last of the line. See, they didn't replicate. So you have, uh, you have these different mystical movements. And the charismatic movement is your latest, you know, merger of mystic, blending of mysticism and, uh, and, and the Bible. So you have to learn to think in terms of these categories just to know what's going on around you. So I ended up last time, I just ran through it so fast, I wanted to go back through it again. We were talking about, this was a quote from, from Lewis Berry Chafer. He said, what he calls false mysticism, and see, even he displays the problem. He has in his systematic theology a false mysticism and a true mysticism. But see, there's no mysticism, if you understand it correctly. And, he, you know, he would go along with that today. The, the false mysticism is the theory that divine revelation is not limited to the written word of God. You don't need to go to the Word and study and just say, open it up. Oh, and then you read it and you go, oh, I know what that means. I don't need to know the Hebrew. I don't need to know the grammar. I don't need to study anything. I just, wow, I know what that means. God spoke to my heart. The theory that divine revelation is not limited to the written Word of God, it also includes this idea of ongoing revelation, but that God bestows added truth to souls that are sufficiently quickened by the Spirit of God to receive it. Mystics of this class contend that by self-effacement and devotion to God, going out and sitting on a pillar, uh, self-flagellation, that individuals may attain to immediate, direct, and conscious realization of the person and presence of God. You just know it. You just, it it's so real. It's just like this inner light. False mysticism includes all those systems which teach identity between God and human life. Pantheism, theosophy, if you don't know what theosophy is, the new word for that is the New Age movement. 
Madame Helena Blavatsky was one of the founders of theosophy and is the you know, great-grandmother of New Age movement. Greek philosophy, Platonism is just loaded, or just, I mean, New Age movement is just loaded with Platonism. In it are included practically all the holiness movements of the day. See, the charismatic, modern charismatic Pentecostal movement came out of the holiness movement in the late 19th century, which came out of the Wesleyan revival of the late 1700s and early 1800s. And it was built on the idea of perfectionism. Spiritism, that's demonism, trying to contact the dead. Seventh-day Adventism, New Thought Metaphysics, that's New Age stuff. Christian Science, Swedenborgianism, Mormonism, Millennial Dawnism, just all kinds of stuff to know about. So, Chafer comments, the founders and promoters of many of these cults may claim to special revelation from God upon which their system is built. So you have to have some criteria to discern the difference. He goes on to say, concerning their doctrine of the inner light, they say that having the indwelling spirit, the individual Christian is in contact with the same one who inspired and gave the scriptures, and that the spirit is not only able to impart added truth beyond that already given in the Bible, but that he is appointed by Christ to do so according to John 16:12 to 13. The idea here is that the Spirit continues to reveal. This is an ongoing thing through the church age. Now, how do we answer that? I mean, this is important. And there's a quote from John 16, 12, and 13, where Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And, of course, that was what he was talking to the apostles, that their job was going to be to inscripturate, and to teach what he said. Now, in Chafer's thought, true mysticism was... Let me skip the chart. We've already been there. True mysticism contends that all believers are indwelt by the Spirit and thus are in a position to be enlightened directly by Him. See, he's using that word enlightened. That's illumination terminology. So for him, true mysticism isn't that inner light subjectivity. It's what I would call revelational theology based on the guiding ministry and teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're going to have mysticism, God's going to speak to you, then what, what happens, because you've broken it down, you've gotten rid of the creator-creature distinction, you, man is really in control. So that means that man is going to try to manipulate the circumstances to get God to speak to him. And one of the things that developed in this was the idea of ecstatics. And people would use drugs. Sometimes they would go on hunger crusades and eventually they would see visions. And this was from God. So they would use all kinds of different things to achieve this ecstatic state. And there are many people who come to the scripture and they don't understand the difference. See, ecstasy, ecstatics, is emotion. Now, to communicate revelation, you have to think. It's based on the subordinated use of reason and logic to God's communication. It's not emotion. So you have dreams and visions as operational modus operandi in the Old Testament. But it wasn't ecstatic. Because as you see, as we'll see in a couple of examples... The Old Testament saints are having conversations with God. Solomon, God appears to Solomon in a dream, and they have a conversation. It's not ecstatics. 
See, in ecstatics, it's, it's, it's non-rational. It's all, all emotive. So dreams and visions never operated on ecstatics. Ecstatics is a technical term and means something different. And I had this quote last week from Leon Wood, who was a great Old Testament scholar up at the, I think it was Grand Rapids Baptist College, wrote a number of works on Israel and the Old Testament and Old Testament commentaries, and he wrote a very technical article on ecstasy and Old Testament prophets. And in that article he notes, quote, An ecstatic frenzy, the subject seeks to withdraw his mind from conscious participation in the world so that it may be open to the reception of the divine word. See, the individual tries to do something to get God to talk to him. That's not what we see in Scripture. What you'll see when we go through the Scripture is that God just speaks. Nobody's expecting it. Nobody's putting themselves in a frame of mind to listen to God. He goes on to say, to achieve this ecstatic state, poisonous gas may be employed, a rhythmic dance like the Sufis, the whirling dervishes in, in Islam, or even narcotics like the, uh, the uh, Comanche Indians would chew the peyote button. And they would pass it around and the chief would get the peyote button and he would chew it and he would go into a hallucinogenic uh, state and he would pass it on to the next Indian. Then it would go all the way around the teepee. And if you ever, if you ever see a picture of Quanah Parker, who was the last great war chief of the, of the Comanche, every picture you see of him was taken on the same day, and he had just come out of the peyote tent, and he's as stoned as he can be. And I know that because when I first started teaching school, the man I worked for was his grandson. To achieve this ecstatic state, so they use all these methodologies to get there. What... Wood goes on to say is that already before Israel's conquest of Palestine, Moses calls himself a prophet. Now, I'm just going to summarize his argument here. It's so good. Moses says, I'm a prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, you're going to expect a prophet like me. But Moses' methodology was not the methodology of the ecstatic prophets of the pagan religions around him. God comes to Moses and says... I I don't speak to you like I speak to others. I speak to you face to face. This is Numbers 12, 18. God said, I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. Now, if if God spoke to Moses plainly and not in dark sayings, not in enigmatic sayings, then that's the modus operandi. That means that other prophets, subsequent prophets who were like Moses, would operate in the same methodology he did. This means ecstatics are completely ruled out. Now that's all review and some expansion, just because we have to understand this before we go forward. Now, let's look at this phrase, God spoke. How did God speak in the Old Testament? Did these guys just wake up one day and say, wow, you heard what God said to me last night. Man, what a dream. And then they all of a sudden came out with their revelation. Or was there something to objectify it, to validate it, to verify it? And what we've seen in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, there were tests. Now, most of you have been through the Scripture enough, and I just want you to think with me. I don't have time to go look at all these passages but we, when we investigate a subject like this, just walk your way through the Scripture. Genesis 1, 
is the first time we hear God speaking. Genesis 1-3, and God said. Now, is that something that's happening subjectively in somebody's head, or is God verbally articulating something? If you had had a tape recorder out in the cosmos on Genesis 1-3, would you have tape recorded a voice? You would have tape recorded a voice. Because we know from Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And furthermore, Jesus is called the Word of God. So there's an objective speaking here. And it goes on through Genesis 1. God said, God said, God said. And then we have this interspersed with statements like, And God called the darkness night. And God called the light day. So God begins to give nomenclature. He's not just thinking within himself. He is verbally articulating. We see this even more when we get into the second chapter. Second chapter, God talks to Adam and he says, You may eat from any fruit of the tree in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. Is this verbal, out loud, audible communication? Yes. He's speaking out loud. You'd had a tape recorder, you could have tape recorded the voice of God. Now, the next interesting thing that happens regarding, to, regarding the revelation of God is in, is in Genesis 3.1. What happens there? That subtle creature comes along and slithers on up to the woman and says, Now, did God really say this? What's he doing? He's challenging the accuracy of God's statement. See, God isn't revealing himself in ideas and in concepts. He revealed precise statement about that fruit tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why we talk about revelation as propositional. These are objective statements. They're not just impressions. They're not just somebody's recording their experience with, with God. But that is Satan's modus operandi is to challenge the verbal articulation of God. In chapter 3, verse 9, as we move through the story, Adam eats of the fruit, and then he and, and the woman hear the sound of God coming in the garden, and they run, and God called Adam's name. Again, he is speaking out loud and audibly. There's a pronouncement of judgment in 3.13 down through 22 where God is again speaking audibly. In Genesis 5.24, we're told that God walked with Noah, I mean with Enoch. God walked with Enoch and it appears that they had a, were having a conversation. I mean, that would be the normal interpretation and meaning of that statement is they were walking along and one day they just walked right on into heaven. And it, they were having a conversation. So again, it was verbal, audible type conversation. Moses in Exodus 19.9 uh, uh, talks to the people, and this is one of the great statements in the Old Testament, as Moses calls the people together in Exodus before Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And in Exodus 19, chapter, uh, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, again, this would be audible revelation, Audible speaking, not just something he hears in his head. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. See, God is going to speak to Moses, but the people are going to listen in. 
That implies audible conversation. If you had a tape recorder there, you would tape record the voice of God. It's not just something happening internally. And then in verse 19, we see that God speaks to the people when, when um, Moses blasts on the trumpet. The end of the verse, it says, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. How much more clear can it be? And then the people don't want to hear it. They want Moses to go up because they can't stand to listen to the voice of God. So what we see is that we have all these different examples. Furthermore, there are various theophanies in Scripture. Various theophanies. Angels appear to give revelation. This is going to the aspect of and Hebrews 1, 1, that there were various ways in which God communicated revelation. Angels communicated information to Zechariah. In Zechariah 4, 1 through 4, Zechariah 5, 5, Ze- uh, angels appeared and warned Joseph, told Joseph that it was okay that, that, uh, that Mary was pregnant, also warned him about Herod and to flee to Egypt. Angels... Uh, you have other kinds of appearances that, that uh, occur of the angel of the Lord again and again and again. So angels are used to communicate truth. Now the question again is, why isn't this mysticism? I mean, that's how the uh, thousands of Christians through the ages has interpreted this as mysticism. Why isn't it mysticism? Because whenever God does something, even in private, he always confirms it in public. And I want to give you another example as we close from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'm just going to run through this. This is, this is when Saul is anointed as king. In chapter 9, a bunch of, a bunch of donkeys, his father apparently raised raised. Uh, Donkeys. It's tempting to say something else, but we won't go there. Uh, raised a bunch of donkeys, and the, these wild don- these donkeys got loose, and they're just scattering all over the place. And he's got to go searching through a lot of different properties and ranches to to find these donkeys. And along the way, he he his companion says, "Well, why don't we go? We're coming near a village, and there's a man of God in this village, and the man of God is Samuel." And so they're going to go ask the man of God if maybe he can tell them where the donkeys are. Now, something else is going on. God is working behind the scenes to prepare the circumstances. And in verse 15 we read, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? What do you think that means? The Lord had told Samuel in his ear. Samuel's not getting this revelation internally between his ears. He's not having a subjective impression. God's whispering in his ear. This doesn't mean other people would have heard it, but it is an objective statement. The Bible's very clear about that. And the Lord told Samuel that tomorrow about this time, I'm going to send a man from the tribe of Benjamin. You're going to anoint him to be king. And so that's the rest of the chapter. And then the next day comes, Saul shows up. And in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now, if you read the text, nobody else is around. This is a private ceremony. Saul's going to go out and he's going to say, Well, now I'm the king of Israel, but nobody knows this. How do you demonstrate that this revelation, which occurred somewhat privately to, Sam, uh, to Samuel, even though it's objective, it's 
it's not some, a voice he's hearing in his head. How do you verify it? Verification comes in chapter 10. Uh, Samuel says, when, first of all, when you leave from me, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. Now, how much more precise can you get? You're going to go by Rachel's tomb, and there's going to be two men there, and they'll say to you that, the, that your father's donkeys are found. So that's the first objective evidence that what I've said is true. Second objective evidence is in verse 3. Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor, and there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats. Notice how precise this is. It's not like, well, there'll be a couple of, a couple of people coming along, maybe three or four, and, and you just fall in with them. I mean, it's real precise. There's going to be three. Uh, one will have three young goats another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from the hands. And after that, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine uh, garrison is. And then you're going to run into a group of prophets. When you run into the group of prophets, you're going to start prophesying, which shows in this context probably means praising God with these prophets. And all of this came to pass. So we take that and we plug it into to Deuteronomy 18, and we see that there's objective, verifiable, testable criteria for the revelation that Saul's going to be the king. And then in chapter 11, God validates it even further by giving uh, Saul a military victory, which was a sign of uh, of the anointed king. One of the indications that a man was anointed was the designated king was that he uh, he had victory over the enemies of God's people. So you see, there's all this objective evidence. God doesn't do something in private that He doesn't validate in public through clear objective revelation. So we have to distinguish what happens in the Bible with what happens outside the Bible. Now, the next big question that we have to answer is, well, how do we know that revelation ceases? There's always somebody coming along saying, well, how do you know that, that, that God's not still speaking to people? I mean, you have all kinds of things happening today. How do you know? How do you know that, that the, the, the gifts, the revelatory gifts of prophecy, knowledge, apostleship, how do you know that those Ceased. How can you demonstrate that from, from Scripture? And I have got a, a perfect solution. I mean, this is, I've seen this argued and batted about so much over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, but most people overlook a very important facet of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13, demonstrating that prophecy and knowledge have clearly ceased. So we'll come back next time. And we'll look at the New Testament aspect of God speaking, why it's through His Son, the relationship of that to the apostles, which is crucial for understanding Revelation. We'll look at the cessation of Revelation, and this lays the foundation from which we're going to move, or the writer of Hebrews moves, into helping us understand why the ascension of Christ is so important. And we can't separate the ascension of Christ from God speaking through His Son. All of this is interwoven in these, the, these opening verses of Hebrews, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You that You have given us such a precise revelation that it's not something the people just dreamed up. It's not the result of some sort of mystical, subjective, non-verifiable encounter, but that Your Word 
as as verifiable. It's objective. It's real. It's absolute truth. And as a result of that, we know that we must pay attention to it, that there's nothing more important than to do what Mary did, and that is to put our priority on learning your word as opposed to the various distractions of life. Father, challenge us with these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.